Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. Steve Murphy and Javier Pena talk to me today on fraud busting. They're the US Drug Enforcement Agency agents who helped catch Pablo Escobar, the Colombian drug lord who was responsible for 80% of the world's cocaine trade. They're depicted as stars in the Netflix show Narcos. Tune in to get the real story of what happened leading up to and during Escobar's takedown. Enjoy. Hi, it's Tracy. Just a quick thought. What would you do with $4? With that same money, a hacker can buy all of your info. I mean, social security number, credit card numbers, passwords, health insurance info, and yes, even your kids' information. Now, I've searched around on the dark web, and it's a good bet your info is out there for sale waiting to be used. If you're lucky, It'll just be a few charges to your credit card, but smart hackers are tapping into your credit to buy TVs, cars, houses, use your medical insurance, and even take over your banking and investment accounts, effectively kicking you out of your own accounts. You're the one that's going to be stuck with this big problem, have mystery bills due, and need to get your money back while repairing your good credit. Now, the folks at ID Shield know this and have the solution. I've teamed up with them on their ID theft insurance. It's comprehensive, it's inexpensive, and it will let you rest easy. They will replace any money you lost, give you access to their team of licensed private investigators to do whatever it takes to repair your credit score. Yep, they'll do the heavy lifting and spend all the hours on the phone and the time it takes to restore your online reputation to pre-breach levels. You, your money, and your reputation are worth more than $4. Treat yourself like it. Go to fraud-busting.com slash IDShield to learn more and get covered today. It's fraud-busting.com slash IDShield. We'll see you on the protected side when you get there. Steve and Javier, thank you so much for joining me on Fraud Busting. It is an honor, like it's really an honor to have you guys. Hey, Tracy. Thanks for having us on the show. Oh, yeah. You too, Tracy. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we're all um, we're all speakers here. We love our keynotes, and we're grounded for a little while, or at least going virtual. So I think this is a good way to um, get to at least meet each other a little bit here and, um, and get the word out. And because uh, I got to tell you, I am fascinated by you guys. And just for, for the audience... Um, DEA, like I'd never really researched into DEA at all. And I read your book and I'm watching Narcos uh, and your book is Manhunters. It's fantastic. Um, and you guys are like the biggest badasses out there. I am, I just, um, let me tell you what I got from reading and watching everything I have so far is that um, everyone's been trying to kill you at least uh, while you were down in Colombia trying to get Escobar. Um, everyone was trying to kill everyone else. <laughs> People were getting just snatched off the street and um, the government's crooked. Maybe the police are crooked. Like some people are working both sides and somehow you guys managed to persevere through all of that and help stop some of the drug trade from Colombia. I mean, did I get, is that the bottom line to everything here? Is that the nutshell? Yeah, that's pretty close. <laughs> what do you say, JP? Yeah, oh, it was beautiful. Well said, could have done it better myself. All right, interview's <laughs> over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, so tell me though, guys, because uh, here's what we want to get to. We got to get to this story. Uh, and I also want to give people some tools. I was thinking last night about, 
because I know, because you know, I'm a body language expert and I'm sure you guys have taken similar training to what I have in how to read people. But I also am guessing that you know how to uh, detect threat and um, survey your surroundings maybe differently than the common guy or common girl on the street out there. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about some of that, but let, let's get into the meat first about how you ended up to be so... I guess, amazing in ways that everybody knows about it. So, so you, did you sign up to go to Columbia and like raise your hand, like pick me, pick me, or like, how did, how did all this happen? Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Basically, I, you know, you, you're being from Texas. I was stationed, my first job in DA was in Austin, Texas, which was beautiful, right? Yeah. I was there uh, 88, I mean, 84 to 88 and I was working the smaller type cases you know I was brand new on the job so we do a lot of surveillances a lot of undercover a lot of basic investigations grunt work right hey Kenya yeah. hey, we need uh you know a weekend to sur- you know surveillance for a whole weekend so hey there I am so I'll go so I did the smaller type cases not knowing I was always intrigued by I want to see how the other world, basically the major league uh, traffickers work. So I, I volunteered. You, you don't, uh, you just, they don't send you to another country. You have to volunteer and you have to have four years on the job. So okay. I volunteered to go to Mexico. Mexico had about, oh, about eight jobs open all over Mexico, Monterey, Mexico City. Anyway, so uh i put in for mexico then when my boss came in uh, he says javier uh, did you put in for colombia i said no sir i said i put in for mexico he said well you got selected to go to colombia oh man and uh you know and he asked me he says if you want to fight it we can you know we can fight it since you didn't put in i said nah boss i'll, I'll go let me let me go see on the map where colombia was so that, <laughs> that was my story how i ended up in in colombia i was uh it was a mistake in paperwork, but you know what? Second uh, thought, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> wow. Wow. What about you, Steve? How'd you end up? Because you were in Miami, weren't you? Like you were right. like Miami Vice, pink, pink uh, blazers. And, <laughs> and don't, you know, don't you have a story about a boat down there? Like, <laughs> didn't yeah, you get on a yeah, boat it was, somehow? It was very exciting. Yeah, I spent four years in Miami. And, and you know, Harvey and I were both uniformed cops before we became federal agents. So we had quite a bit of law enforcement experience coming in, but I uh, spent four years in Miami and, and, and year three, I was working a lot of cases with uh, the DEA office out of Barranquilla that involved money laundering. And we were making some pretty decent money seizures in South Florida. And, and I just really got into that. Well, in 89, while I was down there, we had a, a deal go bad. Uh, my partner and I and a third agent in the house ended up in a, a little gun battle with a couple bad guys that had come in to rip us off. Uh, our informant was killed, um, unfortunately, and my partner Kevin was shot twice in the right arm. He hit, wow. he was hit two times. So you know, we got through all that. But then, uh, as I'm working with the Columbia office a couple years later, my wife is a registered nurse, and and, uh, and she's pretty. She was pretty adventuresome as a young person. Like when I first met her, she owned her own motorcycle. Oh, and how cool! Did not fall in love with a woman that owns her own motorcycle, right? I, I so, used to own my own motorcycle, just so we know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I was talking to her one day and she said, you know, it's been really exciting living here in South Florida. What's the next most exciting thing we can do? And I said, well, we can always go to Columbia. Well, she looked at me like I had three eyes at that point. And, uh, and I knew that just to let her think about it. And she came to me a couple weeks later and she had a few more questions and uh, ended up introducing her to an agent from Barry Key that was up in Miami for a couple of days. And she got to talk to him. And she comes to me like two weeks later. She says, hey, if we're going to go to Columbia, let's do it while we're young. So I put in for Columbia, put in for Barranquilla, uh, got accepted through the party for my enforcement group. Cause that's in DEA culture. That's if you're getting transferred, you throw your going away party. Um, oh. <laughs> it's a little bit different. Uh, and then I uh, got a uh, teletype from headquarters telling me that my transfer had been rescinded because they needed a Spanish speaking agent right away. And I was going to have to go to language school. So, um, a staff coordinator in headquarters called me and he said, Hey, you know, you just got screwed. And he said, there's uh, three openings coming up in Bogota. Would you consider going there? And I really didn't want to because you had to wear a tie in the embassy and I'm, I'm not a tie wearing kind of person. You well, know? Cause, cause you, you, your offices from what I got from the, from, I, cause I'm, I'm getting confused with what I've read versus what I've seen on the, um, 
on the mm -hmm. show and keeping it straight. So your offices are in, sound like in the basement of the embassy. Is that <laughs> right? Or, or how did all that work? No, they were to start with. Um, and I got one of the jobs in Bogota. So when we got there, the DA offices were in the basement, right off the garage where the uh, ambassador's bulletproof suburban was parked. And, you know, when it rained, water would pour into the basement, flood our offices. It was oh. really nasty down there. <laughs> but oh, eventually, uh, we got moved up to the third floor of the embassy, so we got out of that mess. Uh-huh. That's, That's not, not bad. bad. Third floor. Okay. So you, you end up, now you're in Colombia, or you're in Bogota or Medellin? Uh, we'll start out, I started out in Bogota, and that's where Javier is. Okay, okay, so you're in Bogota, and then now going down there, did you know about Escobar? Were you like, this is the target, this is the guy, or did you have to kind of uncover some stuff to figure out what was going on? Like, how did all this really unfold? Yeah, with me, I, you know, being in, in, in Texas, I had heard of Escobar, we had no dealings uh, with him, so I really didn't know him or knew what type of trafficker he was, just a general, hey, he's a big trafficker, that's it. You know, we worked a lot of Mexican type traffickers in the Austin area that were sitting there. So when when I get to, uh, and I and I go to Bogota, like Steve said, so in its embassy, you're assigned to the embassy. And with me, my old boss, my boss who was in station in San Antonio, a guy by the name of Joe Top, was my boss in Texas. Then all of a sudden, when I go to Colombia, he gets selected as it's a promotion for him as a country out of shape or DEA in Colombia. So he knew me and knew my, my work ethic. So we get to Colombia around the same time. And uh, this is uh, 1984. And then uh, I've been in there about two weeks where he says, hey, Javier, we're going to sign you the Pablo Escobar investigation with another partner who was getting ready, was facing out, she was going to be leaving Colombia. So uh, we partnered up. So I had to study everything about Escobar. I did not know know him, so I had to learn. And we learned uh, right away who Pablo Escobar uh, was. Because he was, wasn't he running for office or he decided to run for office? Was this before that or? Yeah, be, before that, he was a, what they call the suplente, which is an assistant congressman, got selected. And then uh, they found out this guy was, was a trafficker. So he was ousted uh, from uh, government. And it's kind of interesting because the guy who ousted him was a congressman by the name of uh, Luis Carlos uh, Galan. And Galan knew this guy was a trafficker. Anyway, I say that because that comes into play uh, years later, 1989, where Galan is running for president and Pablo Escobar has him killed while he is running for president. That's why I mentioned it, because there's a, that other side to that story. Uh, but... Uh, like I said, it's, we, we did not know who Pablo Escobar was. I mean, he was very, and we can talk about, you know, we can talk hours about his, his character, his personality, his viciousness, uh, and then also that charismatic side of the, of the house that Pablo Escobar was. So we can, you know, get that into in a little bit. Oh, and, yeah. Well, we're, we'll get there for sure. So, yeah. so you guys are partnered up. And then what do they say? Just here's some backstory and go figure it out. And, and find, like, what was the objective here? Was it to find him and put him in jail? Or are we going to kill him? Or what was the, what was the end game here? Well, just to set the scenario here a little bit, Javier arrived in Colombia in 1988 and I didn't get there until 1991. Okay. I reported to the embassy on a Monday morning and three days later is when Pablo surrendered to his custom built prison. So I like to tell people he heard that Murphy's in town. He might as well just give it up. <laughs> his days were numbered. Clearly which that's we, the case. <laughs> well, which we all is not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. Um, but I knew Escobar from Miami days. I, I worked all the, all, he controlled South Florida. So all the drug cases we were making in South Florida tied back to the Medellin cartel. I never had a case that got up to his level to where I could indict him, but it was all Medellin cartel cocaine. Um, when, so when I got there, I knew who he was, but fortunately for me, Javier was partnered up at that time with a guy named Gary Sheridan. Gary's sharpest guy in the world, but uh, he got promoted and sent up to the Baron Key office, and that's how Javier and I ended up being partners. But um, to get that first year when Pablo was in his custom-built prison, that gave me an opportunity to 
to pick Javier's brain every day to learn all about the organization. Because now, now here's a guy who Javier knew about Pablo, but didn't know anything about him when he arrived. Now he's the DEA expert on Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. So I couldn't have had a better mentor or tutor to bring me up to speed on everything. Mm -hmm. But this is one thing that really astounded me. That first week when Pablo surrendered, I thought, that's great, man. The world's biggest cocaine dealers in prison. And what I saw from Javier and Gary and, and Joe Toft and everybody else in the embassy was disappointment. And I thought, well, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, you got this guy in prison. That's where he needs to be. Not knowing all the background, all the misery these guys had been going through for several years before I ever got there. And as I learned more from these guys and reading reports and, and learning about the history of Pablo, then I understood why they were disappointed because they felt like all these sacrifices were being made. You know, thousands of Columbia police officers were being killed as well as thousands and thousands of innocent citizens that just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then I understood why they were disappointed because they wanted to take Pablo out. So, so he, so he built his own jail, <laughs> like Barney Fife's or no, who is it? Uh, Otis who on uh, Andy Griffith always go and put himself in jail like every weekend. <laughs> is it kind of like that or, or what was the whole, how does that work? <laughs> okay. Well, basically, Tracy, yeah, I know. I, I, I watch Andy Griffith too. Yeah, he's got his own key. He goes in, sleeps it off. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, with Pablo, because of all the, you know, all the terrorism, because of all the killings, the bombings, the assassinations, the numerous police officers, you know, and Steve and I had a couple of good friends of ours, police officers that were killed by mm. Pablo Escobar. But it, it was just a very drastic, it was a very violent time in Colombia. I mean, the 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 weekend deadly, the murder rate in Medellin was about 300 on a weekend. People oh. get killed. Oh, yeah, it, it was bad. And then you, you couple that with the, the bombings, right? The, the car bombings, indiscriminate, 10 car bombs a day. I mean, the atrocities go on and on. The commercial airline that he downed, the presidential candidate, which I briefly mentioned about. So mm -hmm. Colombia was going through that violent, violent phase. So when Escobar called up the government of Colombia and basically says, hey, I'm, I'm willing to stop the bombing campaign and I'm willing to self-surrender, it was like, wow, thank you. That is great news, Mr. Escobar. But then he said, you know what, wait, I've got certain conditions that you know, if you want me to surrender that you have to adhere to it, all right? What are the conditions? And one was, I'm going to surrender to my own prison and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build it and I'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. Hire my own prison guards, take my sicarios with me and nobody can come and visit me. And the government of Colombia accepted that deal. So that is, we did not approve that deal. We did not like that deal. But again, it's not our country. We were just there as, uh, you know, we were there, uh, you know, helping out uh, Colombia. So it was not our decision to be made. However, the decision was made in, in like Steve uh, said earlier, basically, you know, we were mad because, you know, like I said, we lost. Pablo Escobar had won because of, what, what happened to all the innocent people that got killed, all the police officers, the, the, the terrorism, you know, uh, what, what, what's going to happen with that? Nothing, because we knew that Escobar, we knew the prison was not going to be a prison. And, you know, what we were proven right after uh, his escape. So those were the conditions. And well, yeah. we also, and let me just say also, and Steve brings up a good point a lot of times when we say that, if you're the president of Colombia and you have a chance to save people's lives, would you do it? And I think he made the right decision. We didn't like it because bombings did stop, killings did stop. Mm -hmm. However, we knew that justice had not been served. Wow. Okay. So, but you you've been chasing him along. And at a certain point, didn't he have a bounty on on both of you guys, or one or the other? Is or is, was that just in the in the TV show? <laughs> No, uh, he had he, he put a bounty. First of all, he put a bounty on Colombian police officers of a hundred dollars for the death of a Colombian police officer. Now that's just pathetic. And that's that, nothing. I mean, that's, that's one of the nest, That's one of the worst things I've ever heard. It just shows how despicable this guy is. But the bounty he put on Javier and I was three hundred thousand dollars each. Wow. So, um, and and I just got to be honest about that bounty. I you know 
we were up flying operations and going on raids and things like that. But probably the biggest threat I faced from that bounty is that my wife would kill me in my sleep because I was worth more dead than I was alive. <laughs> so your wife would get it. Me and my husband joke about that with life insurance. Um, but, but now, now tell me, um, could you, now Steve, you got your wife in, like, it was, sounds like your wife was kind of into it. Um, now the scene in, um, in the Netflix show, Narcos, where you guys are coming through customs and they figure out it's you and they end up taking a copy of your passport and they realize you have this cat. Like, is that, did that happen? Or some of it, some of it did, some of it didn't. So, you know, we really did have a cat with us named Puff. Okay. Uh, and you, and you arrive in Bogota late at night, it's like nine o'clock and you know, it's a Sunday night and they've got a duty agent picking you up and, he wasn't happy to have to, you know, give up his party to come and meet us at the airport. So he was kind of nasty about things. And they probably did photocopy my passport, but we have no indications whatsoever that they photocopied and emailed it to anybody that, you know, provided it to the Medellin cartel. That's, that's pretty much Hollywood right there. Okay. Then, okay. You know, you get to the scene where uh, they sacrifice, you know, Sicario breaks into our apartment and kills our cat. I was, I wanted to ask about that. Yeah. What, how is that? Well, it used to be that was the most frequently asked question we get in our shows. And and the truth is, Puff did die in Columbia, but Puff was old. He had a heart attack. You know, the scenarios <laughs> didn't reach in there sacrificing. Uh, it just shows you, you know, the writers in, uh, in Hollywood are pretty creative. <laughs> Maybe a little I bit. I guess. <laughs> I was worried about you, especially your wife. I was like, she's going to leave him. I know she is. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, she made no secret. Puff was around before I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. How, now let's, let's talk about um, what happened uh, in real life versus the TV show about uh, first thing I got to know, Javier, are you really that much of a ladies man? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was my number one question. When we do presentations <laughs> that I have all this affairs and I'm just going to say you what. If you think it's true, it is true. So yeah. anyway, we'll Tracy, leave it at that. Tracy, that's yeah. the one part of Narcos that is true. Is uh, it? That, nah. That's how you got all your information is paying off your, your nah. ladies? <laughs> like I said, if, now, Tracy, if that would have been true, I told people I'd be getting out of prison right about now. Oh. <laughs> you know. Now, how, 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 how does that work, though? Like, Because you, you hear about American... Um, you know, officials do pay for information. I mean, is that uh, what y'all were doing or what, how does how yeah. all that work? Well, yeah, that's part of the, the informant world, the uh, informants, remember, and you see them on, on the movies, on TV, they're either working off a beat, they've been arrested, right? And they're working off a, their case, helping, uh, helping the police, or you have professional informants who are in it for the money. And this guy's, you know, ladies and gentlemen, they're good. You know, that's what they do. Uh, they, they get paid. And in Colombia, we had the same thing. And in a lot of, uh, well, and I'm not going to get too much into our DEA uh, informant history, but it, it's basically some people wanted a new life down there. They wanted to get away from Pablo Escobar. And the best way was, hey, informing on him. And we took care of some people. Yes, of course, you know, gave them a new life. They deserved it. They helped us. Uh, but so it's uh, the informant business. It's a dirty business. You know, they're, they're in it. They're, uh, we didn't ask them to get into the business, right? That's one, one thing when you see in the movies, uh, they're trying to protect the informant. Well, of course we try to protect them, but how did they get there in the first place? We didn't, you know, right? Yeah. They uh, realize that they're now they're trying to help you out. So it, it's a, and, and that's a class all in itself, informant handling. So we'll just, you know, drop it at that. But, you know, basically we have to take care of the informants. If they're helping us, we're going to try our best to take care of them. And that's the, uh, how it happened in Colombia, obviously, you know, and, and you know, everybody knows the factors are either money, uh, a new life, uh, security, and uh, or they're, you know, working off of beef. Uh, so it, it's a very, it's a dangerous world. It's a dirty world. Uh, I can say that, you know, the informal life. Now, it, 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 it appeared to be such a dirty world, especially on the, um, on the show, like, how do you navigate that? It, I mean, I, when you're under 
it seemed like you're under threat like 24 seven, like there was no way to escape it. And it seemed like even if you were to come home, they'd find you there. Like what's the reality? How, how do you manage that stress just daily? How does that work? You know, um, and there's several reasons for all of this. Um, you learn through your police training to be aware of your surroundings and you should do that. You don't have to be a cop. Everybody should be aware of their surroundings and that's what keeps you safe, keeping your eyes open. Um, and so we were able to do that. You know, we we were not tough guys. We weren't, you know, Marvel superheroes going in there. Uh, we were just professional law enforcement officers with a lot of experience and um, I think one of our endearing traits was that Javier and I both have a very strong work ethic. You know, we had the ability to focus on a mission and see that mission through successfully. Because uh, there was, you know, there's a lot, there were several times when even we got discouraged with everything and wanted to say, hey, just let the guy surrender again. You know, let's all go home, call it a day. But then we'd see our friends, our, some of our police officer friends get killed in the line of duty, or you'd see innocent people who had been the victims of a car bomb that Pablo had set off. You know, so that renews your resolve to, to you know, get over the self-pity, stop feeling sorry for yourself and get back on mission. Um, initially, when you when you start going out, uh, especially once we started living in Medellin with the cops, Javier knew these guys much better than I did. And, and he speaks fluent Spanish and I speak a lot of Spanglish. Yeah. Trying to get along, you know. And uh, but initially you're very concerned about your safety we trusted the police officers that we dealt with. We worked with a very elite group of Colombian police officers and we fully trusted them. Turns out after everything was over, one of them did end up being dirty, but he never ratted us out, never put us in a dangerous situation. You know, they went a long way to keeping Javier and I alive. So initially you have those concerns that you're a target, but it's like anything else in life. When it's repeatedly in your face, you become complacent, you get used to it. Mm -hmm. and. And, you know, quite honestly, as a Christian, I feel like, well, when the good Lord says my time is up, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm out chasing Pablo Escobar on a raid or I'm sitting here talking to you on a podcast, mm -hmm. when your time's up, your time's up. Well, I hope it doesn't come on the podcast. Jesus. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that. So you go down there and you're doing your research, you're doing raids, uh, and the whole mission is to catch Pablo, right? Right. Now, here, here's here's the real question I have is so, you know, this is a huge organization that he's put together. It's not it's not just him. So let's say you take out the top guy. What does that really do to the drug trade in the system? I mean, how, how does and, and maybe you saw that when he went to prison? I, I don't know. Like, t tell me tell me about that. What happened when you went to prison and then talk about the escape and what hap has happened since then? All right. I'll, I'll take the first part. And basically, uh, Tracy, when you you hit it on the head when he said, "Well, what do you do when you take out Escobar?" And we we did not target. Of course, we targeted Pablo Escobar, but we targeted the whole organization, the whole cartel. Okay. That's one of the things that we did different. And now that you know, we, that's one of our concepts all over the world. You go after the whole organization from from the bottom all the way to the top. So we were concentrating in Miami, in the United States, anybody who was working for Pablo Escobar, we had a priority that our offices would go after them. And in Colombia, we were targeting money launderers working for Escobar. We were targeting the airplane guys buying the airplanes. Now that's another world very- Oh, wow. Okay. Being made by uh, an innocent guy buying an airplane and selling it to Pablo Escobar, money launderers, the, the distributors, then the cocaine labs. So, and then of course, then the the other, you know, leg uh, on that chair was the Sicarios. And, and let me just mention right now, the Sicarios, we never, we, we don't deal with Sicarios. We, you know, the assassins, we, in the States, we don't have that per se. You have them on an individual, but in Colombia, it was a whole network, just huh. basically with Sicarios. Had about 500 working for him and and uh when you talk about him and i had the uh well i was involved in one of the arrests anyway i'm not gonna get into it but i've talked about it before 
when we arrested one of the Sicarios, I mean, it's something I'll never forget, you know, when he said that, you know, he was going to die and kill for Pablo Escobar. And, you know, when he started asking what what's going on, well, he said he he took my family, gave us money. My mom took her out of poverty, built us a house, gave oh. us money. So I love Pablo Escobar, you know, my allegiance. He said, I'll be dead by 22, 23 years old. So I'm going to die for Pablo Escobar. I'm a Sicario, and I've already, he admitted to me, 10 killing of police officers. He had wow. only 10 police officers at $100 a hit. And that's one of the concepts that we could never understand. But then when you look at their life, at that Sicario-type life, uh, as long as Pablo Escobar gave him a hug, you know, that charismatic side of Pablo Escobar, mm -hmm. he didn't have a charismatic side of, uh, of him, you know. He hugged him, kissed him, you know, this guy's worshipped Pablo Escobar, but then it was like, hey, I need this uh, family wiped out, you know, you had volunteers, I need a car bomb place, you had volunteers of all these young assassins. So it, it was like, that was a brand new concept that we had never dealt with. Uh, so it was hard understanding it. But then once you understood that concept, that this young, and, you know, they were kids, but they were thugs mm -hmm. uh, uh, that are going to kill and they're going to sacrifice. They don't care. It's how do you defend against that? So that, that was very different. Something we had to learn to deal with them right away. Huh. You know, the, the second part of your question, Tracy, about the uh, what positive effect, if any, did it have by taking out Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel? Well, did it have a positive effect? It did. Okay. For what, maybe, maybe two weeks? Because we all know the Cali cartel stepped up. So then DEA comes in with Columbia National Police and they take out the Cali cartel. Well, then the North Valley cartel steps up. And after them, uh, Don Berna steps up. It just... There's so many evil people out there waiting to take the place of the people that are being arrested because it's so, you know, it's easy to take advantage of people like you and us, you know, we're retired law enforcement. Um, we're not the, the guys conducting investigations. So people say, well, you know, did your efforts really have a, a good effect on the war on drugs? Well, first of all, the, the title War on Drugs is one of the biggest misnomers that's ever been in the U.S. government. Oh, okay. Let's uh, talk about that. And I, we will. We, you know, we try not to shy away. And let me just preface this by saying, by saying this to you, we're not taking any, anything away from the brave men, of law, men and women of law enforcement, okay? Because mm -hmm. we still need those people who are willing to put a uniform on and put themselves between all of us in harm's way. So God bless you, law enforcement. Uh, I can't imagine what you're going through today, but, you know, I want you to know that, that we're with you and most of the public is with you. Right. But um, when you're going to go for a war, if you're going to go fight a war, you, tra you traditionally line up your allies, you get all your materials ready, you ship troops over, you go into win. Well, here we are going after the world's first narco-terrorist, a man who has introduced a business model of cocaine trafficking that makes him responsible for as much as 80% of the world's cocaine, and what do the United States send? Have your opinion, Steve Murphy. Does that sound like a war? <laughs> we sent the best. We only needed yes. two. Come on. Now we had—I mean, we had—you know—the agents and analysts back in the embassy. They were there supporting us. You know, they were—they would come run. All you had to do is let them know, and they would run there to be there with you. We had our officers around the world participating. Headquarters mm -hmm. was behind us. But it just wasn't a war. You know, we brought in, uh, the ambassador brought in the U.S. Army's Delta Force, and we brought in the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6. But then the politicians restricted them to base, which, by the oh. way, Hunter and I were restricted to base also. Oh, really? Well, military, they follow orders, and, and cops, we don't break the law, but we will bend the heck out of rules and regulations. Okay. So Hummer and I would go out on operations. We'd go out and meet informants. I mean, we did everything that we knew we had to do to do the job. Uh, whereas the military follows orders, and those guys stayed back. If the, United, if the politicians had let Delta and SEAL Team 6 go out and do their job, Javier and I feel pretty certain that Pablo would have been caught within three months or less of his escape from the prison. Uh -huh. We had assets that were, were identifying locations associated with him. Uh, there was a Colombian colonel that uh, initially that was hesitant to go on operations and commit resources, so that was a... Uh, 
an obstacle, a big roadblock that we had to eventually overcome by going over his head. But um, those guys are just phenomenal at what they do. They're the mm -hmm. best special operators in the world. In fact, we tell at every show we do, we tell everybody, if Javier and I are ever kidnapped, that's who we want to come and get us. Seals. Oh, yeah. Them. We've seen what they can do, and they are that good. Uh-huh. But politics got in the way. So um, now some people say, well, you know, and I want to get into a legalization debate, but let me just say, some people say, well, let's legalize it. That's one of the craziest ideas. I'm trying to clean up my language here, Tracy. <laughs> You're holding yourself back from saying something a little stronger. I can see that's all right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous because you look at the countries that have tried it. It hasn't worked anywhere in the world yet. But, you know, hey, we're the United States. We think we're smarter than the rest of the world. So we're going to try legalizing marijuana. And let's just see where this gets us because the violence hasn't gone away. Our drug problem hasn't gone away. You know, we've still got uh, foreign nationals bringing marijuana into our country because they know we're suckers that will buy the stuff. Mm -hmm. So this all kind of leads to one point, and that is how do you address the drug problem in the United States? How do we address the worldwide drug problem? Well, I mean, our big advocates of education at the very mm -hmm. earliest age, teach children what's right, what's wrong, which should be done already, but we know we're getting more permissible as we go along. Yeah, we are. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, people we've run into at different shows. After the show, we go out and meet the audiences. And, and uh, here in the U.S., you know, you have young people come up and say, oh, I remember going through the D.A.R.E. program. That was so great. I love that D.A.R.E. officer. I love the school resource officer really had a positive impact on my thoughts about drug trafficking and, and drug usage, illegal drug usage. Um, so we're big advocates of that. But the truth is, there's so many evil people in the world waiting to take advantage of us. As long as there's a demand, somebody will provide the supply. Mm -hmm. It's basic law of economics, supply versus demand. So we need to do a better job, we think, at addressing the demand problem. Now, and, you know, particularly here in the United States, because we're the largest consumer country in the world of illegal narcotics. Really? That's a reputation to be proud of, isn't it? Yeah, we're number one. Yeah. So it, there's a lot of variables in here. But the bottom line is, God bless law enforcement, because we definitely need those guys. And I say guys, I mean men and women out there protecting us on a daily basis. Doesn't it give you a little bit of comfort being able to grab your phone, dial 911, and, and police officers will come running to your aid? And it does me. Well, I'll tell you, this whole defund the police thing, I'm not for that. Um, and I understand that um, cops deal with a lot of things that, um, you know, other professionals can, maybe should deal with. But I think the police are probably the first line. And then we need to get them to a place that can help them and not keep them in the legal system more than necessary. Um, so, so that's where, that's where my thought is on this is um, let, let's give people the right help, but uh, having someone show up who knows how to handle a dangerous situation. Uh, I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that every day. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's talk about the, the work you all did. Like, like you, you've got Pablo, like, do you have him like cornered to where he's, thinking I got to build a jail and just hang out there or like how, how did he get to that point of needing to make a move yeah he got to that point Tracy because and, and you know what he he thought it out he uh by him killing all the innocent people the car bombs I, I mentioned you know 10 car bombs on a daily basis Colombia was getting tired, the assassinations, then the kidnapping started, where he was kidnapping a lot of press uh, people, journalists, so they could listen to his story. Uh, and then, uh, like I said, one of the worst was that commercial airline bombing, where he mm -hmm. put a bomb on a commercial airline, Avianca Airlines, going to Bogota to Cali. Then he put a bomb at the DAS building. DAS was like the local FBI office in Colombia. 20-story building, put oh, a boy. bus, yeah, they packed the bus with 500 kilograms of TNT, blew it up, about 120 people died. 500 kilograms, so a kilogram is like three pounds. No, 2 yeah, 2.2. Yeah, it was so, a big bomb. Yeah, yeah, that's was, a lot, yeah. The, the, the bus ended up a couple of blocks away uh, from that site, uh, but, you know, the, the moral of the story 
is that he was killing as many people as possible. He wanted numbers uh-huh. uh, in, so that he could, so that Colombia could uh, basically meet his demands. Oh, so, remember, so we put the number that of innocent people getting killed about 10 to 15,000. And, and we, we put the math to it. Okay, the car bombs, the, all those commercial buildings, the assassination. Anyway, it came out to anywhere from 10 to 15,000 innocent people being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And one of his sicarios, the only guy basically left was a guy by the name of Popeye was a major assassin. So he surrendered. I think he ended up doing about 25 years uh, in jail. He, he gets out about five years ago. And on his admission, and he he's on YouTube, he's got more shows than all of us put together, you know. So he would talk about that the number he thinks or he claims that Pablo killed about 50,000. Oh, boy. Okay. 50,000. And he himself claims that he he was responsible for about 300 of those. So anyway, yeah. So a lot of people were getting killed because of Escobar's war on Colombia. So this is why when he calls Colombia and says he wants to self-surrender into his own prison, you know, and Tracy, put yourself in the president's shoes. What what are you going to say when he said, you know, you got the world's, like I said, worst, you know, assassin. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? You're trying to protect lives. Um, we're not saying the president did the right decision, uh, but you got to look at his, why he did it. So that's why he accepted. Pablo, Pablo says, I'm going to stop my killing. So you're the president, let him surrender. And it, and it worked. You know what? When he surrendered, you know, the, the killing stopped, the bombings stopped. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I mean, and uh, if you want to get into the prison, his prison life, I mean, it was no prison life. It was a country club oh, type yeah. uh, setting. It was, there was no bars. He had his own apartment. I mean, we show people photos of all the luxury he had. Uh, uh, he was having parties every night. Uh, just whatever he wanted to do, was, it was not a prison. So what prompted the escape, basically, from his, from his country club, right? Uh-huh. He, had, he was only given five years to serve. So he was at the end of the one year of, of serving time. A couple of sicarios around him, and they found a bag of money that the money had deteriorated. Basically, the weather conditions okay. had beaten up the money. It had been covered properly. So they take it back to... Escobar and, and the Sicarios did not like his two main lieutenants, the drug guys. They were the ones who were distributing all the loads, giving Pablo Escobar money while he was in prison. So it, it pissed off Escobar because he thought they were holding out on him. So when he calls in the two lieutenants to the prison, in the two lieutenants, they do not know it's a, it's going to be a mean meeting. They think it's a friendly meeting. In fact, Paulo tell me, yeah, just no, no, no body, because they had their own bodyguards. He said, uh-huh. no, I want to talk to them by themselves. I just want to see what's going on in Medellin. I, you know, we're going to have some drinks here. I got some more derbs <laughs> ready <laughs> for them, right? So they come in all thinking it's it's a, it's a nice meeting, yeah. yeah, happy hour. And then they see the money, and Pablo is standing on the on, on top of, or you know, close to the money, looking at it. And that's when they realize, uh oh, this is, you know. So they try to talk him out of it, saying, "Boss, it's not what you think. That we didn't hold out on you. We forgot about the money." And I believe that story. But Pablo gets so incensed, right? So so pissed that that uh, you know, and they can tell they're trying. And then all of a sudden, Pablo kills one of the guys. Uh huh. So, oh. Yep, the other Sicarios killed the other guy. That's what prompted the government of Colombia to say, because hey, we have that information, enough is enough. We're going to move him. So oh. when they come to move him from his country club setting, right? Uh-huh. Real jail, that's what he fights. His Sicarios fight the, the, the military that's coming into moving, and he escapes. And that's where Steve and I arrive at the so-called person the following day. Steve, you, does, you want to explain the prison? <laughs> yeah, it was it was, yeah, it was pretty much a joke. So, you know, <laughs> um, 
because of the, because of the stipulations he put on there during his time in prison, the good guys being the Columbia National Police and the Gringos being us, mm-hmm. were not allowed to come within two miles of the perimeter of the prison. And you know what? I mean, we were pretty good at intercepting telephone communications back then. But that whole year that Pablo was in prison, we didn't enter, enter, intercept a single call coming out of there. We couldn't figure out why. And there's a lot of speculation about it. Oh, boy. But when we got into prison, what we found is he was using carrier pigeons. Really? <laughs> we really hesitate to give him credit for anything, but that, that's pretty ingenious. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, and if and if you watch that scene in Narcos where it shows Javier and I trying to shoot those pigeons down, here's here's how you can tell if it's real or if it's Hollywood. Okay. Watch that scene and look at the proximity of where we are in relation to where the prison is on the hillside on top of the hill. Uh-huh. A shotgun blast would have been heard at that prison if we were out there shooting at those birds. <laughs> they would have sent Sicarios down there, and I'm pretty sure we would be talking to you today. So just right, that's right. an indication that's a Hollywood addition to the to the real story. <laughs> but. We got in there, you know, he had, uh, Pablo had a two-room suite. Uh, the first room was a living room, a kitchen area. He had a side-by-side refrigerator freezer. He had a full-size microwave oven. He had custom-built cabinetry. He had color-coordinated draperies and oh, upholstery boy. on his furniture, which we have in the United States prisons. We call it ugly gray, right? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Flowery and, and everything. He had... Um, he had legitimate pieces of artwork hanging on the wall. He had, you've heard of Salvador Dali, the famous yeah, artist. Yeah. He had a Salvador Dali original hanging in the prison worth oh, over boy. $3 million. Uh-huh. Uh, you go into the second room, that's the bedroom and office area. Uh, had a fireplace. He had pictures. He had, he had one collage of all his mug shots matted in frame hanging on the wall. You know, that's, that's what he was proud of. Oh, boy. Um, you go into his private bathroom. You know, what we have in our U.S. prisons is called group showers. So he goes into his private bathroom. He's got a jacuzzi tub in there. <laughs> this is supposed to be a punitive environment, right? Right, right. He's got a walk-in closet with all of his fancy clothes. And, and there was no prison garb in. There was no pinstripe shirts and pants that they wore. They just wore whatever the clothes they wanted to. Yeah. And behind the drawers that you pull out in the inside the closet, there was a safe hidden back there. Even on the back wall where his hanging clothes, you know, the like I've learned this from my wife, you know, you, you ladies need a, an area where you can hang your long dresses. Oh yeah, so yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you pull all those clothes out of way, and there's a, a coletta, a hiding area. It looks like a solid wall, but when you hit the button, the back wall pops open and there's a little hiding spot for him in case he's stuck in his room when they come to get him. You know, he's thinking he can jump in there and hide. Oh boy, secret um, compartments. I love secret compartments. <laughs> he had them everywhere. There were all the other prisoners, they had two room suites, but you know what? They didn't have jacuzzi tubs. Yeah, no, no. Um, anyway, so, at the no, no, you go ahead. I was going to say at the beginning of the prison, when we first came in, there were two sets of steel bars to create the appearance that this is a, a prison environment. Uh-huh. But once you got inside, it was wide open. Uh, he had. He even had an anti-aircraft gun on the grounds of the prison to shoot us down if we came in there to get him. Now, do you think we wanted to go get him? You know we did. Yeah, yeah. We just couldn't come up with an idea or an operation where we felt like we could safely insert our troops and then get everybody back out. Wow, interesting. So, so he escapes. Like, they're coming to move him. Does he take out running? What does he do? Uh, does someone come pick him up? Uh, helicopter or what? Took off walking. He walked out. When the firefight started, remember the military guys and the Sicarios, the public guards, he had, and the prison guards that were working were on the payroll of, of Escobar. He hired them, so they belonged to him, basically. Uh-huh. So Colombian military guys, 20 guys come in. We got to take you out to a prison, a real prison. That's when the firefight starts. And after it's over, there's people killed. Pablo and about eight Sicarios walk. They walk out of that prison, and we start intercepting them. I mean, and he's very disorganized, right? I mean, you're running. He's in a disarray. People are hiding him. Uh, he's asking uh, for help. He's got safe houses. Uh-huh. He's got people helping him out, but he's vulnerable. Yeah. And, and uh, basically, I mean, long story short, it took us 18 months to find him. We had him located at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But we did not have the necessary, we didn't have the help to go after him. Got it. We we, we got the help by bringing in certain, uh, the police 
that were involved in the first search who were out of the country. They sent them to uh, diplomatic missions, right? So w there's a famous colonel in Colombia, Colonel Hugo Martinez, who was the boss. And he hated Escobar and Escobar hated him. Escobar was trying to kill his family. So when Escobar escaped, Colonel Martinez was in another country. So it took us about three months before we brought him back. And that's when it, it, it made a difference. And basically, I know we're running out of time, but it took us 18 months to when we finally, uh, you know, when finally Pablo Escobar gets killed. He should have been captured and or killed within two, uh, two weeks after right, his escape. Right. We didn't have the necessary uh, manpower. But Manpower, all, politics, and all sorts of stuff. All that stuff. Yeah, but by Steve and I moving in, and we called it Bloque de Busque, the search block. It was an old police base, and all our objective was to go after Pablo Escobar. So we had a uh, uniform site, you know, had the, you know, uh, the mm -hmm. guys who did the operation. Then we had, like, the undercover side of the police, which was the plain clothes, and that's who we worked with, and it was a group called Behin. Uh -huh. uh, there were specialized guys, and this guy's hated Escobar. They had worked on him the first time. So basically, we put the band back together again from the beginning, the second search. And by Steve and I uh, living on base, we had a 800 number. We're offering $5 million reward for Pablo Escobar, which did help. And then, uh, uh, like I said, there was a vigilante group called Los Pepes that was formed and uh, we, we tried to, we explained it in the book who Los Pepes uh, wore, but they were basically made up of, remember the two guys that Pablo killed yeah. earlier? They're underlings, their security people said, we're gonna fight Escobar dirty. So they were trying to kill Escobar's family and they were able to kill about 30 of his, you know, uh, friends and family members. So, uh, but anyway, it was, uh, the search lasted 18 months and uh, basically, you know, it was uh, December 3rd, right? Okay. December 2nd. Yeah, December 2nd uh, when, when he was killed. So uh, there must have been a shootout when he was killed then, I suppose, like some kind of raid or some sort. Now, were you guys there or... I, I, I was not, but Steve was there and, you know, I, it, the ambassador had sent me to meet with an informant. I tried to tell the ambassador we were close. We have him located. The ambassador ordered me to go talk to another informant. So I was not there. Steve was there. Wow. Yeah, so, and if you watch the TV show, Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. Uh -huh. That's not true, that's Hollywood. Oh, okay. I was back at the base. I was actually in the room with all the Americans, the, the Delta Force guys, the SEAL team guys. Mm -hmm. um, even a couple of other agencies were involved there. Uh, so, and the reason I mention that is because I know where they were. I mean, 18 months with these guys, you get to be pretty good friends, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're all there. Well, then I see in the courtyard area, I can see the, the colonel's executive staff rushing over to his office. And obviously that's a clue that something's going on. Well, Javier and I had such a good working relationship with Colonel Martinez, we could go over. And what I did is I walked over to his office and I stood in the doorway and he saw me and he motioned for me to come on in. So I stood in the back with the lieutenant colonels and the majors. Uh -huh. And he's on the phone talking to his son, Lieutenant Hugo Martinez. The lieutenant is telling his dad, hey, I have found Pablo Escobar. I've seen him. Zero margin of error here. So the, the elite group of guys, the Dehean unit that Javier and I have been working with all this time, they're out there in the general area. So they come over and they surround the place. And it's a row house. It's a bunch of row houses. Okay. Excuse me. The colonel tells them to secure the location we're mounting up the troops, we're coming out to back you up. Well, when we mount up the troops, that's 600 people. Oh boy. It takes quite a while to get 600 people loaded up on trucks and to issue weapons and assignments and roll call and everything you gotta do. I mean, it doesn't happen just in a minute or two, you know? Uh -huh. So the Dehean guys, there's two majors out there, they make the call uh -huh. to go ahead and initiate the raid on the row house because they don't take a chance on losing Pablo. Mm -hmm. And that's what Colonel Martinez told them. Don't, you know, do what you have to do, but if you can wait, wait on us. Uh -huh. so they go ahead and initiate the raid. It's a three-story row house. They they use debt cord to blow the door off the, the hinges there in the front entrance. When you go in the first floor, it's like a combination kitchen, believe it or not, garage, 
and a and bathroom and storage rooms on that first floor. A combo kitchen and garage? That sounds good. <laughs> Believe it or not. First class. <laughs> so there's your, your counters there in front of the kitchen, you know, the oven, the stove, refrigerator, and there's a taxi cab parked right in front of the counter. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, different. that's good. So they make their way up to the second floor. Well, Pablo realizes something's going on because he's heard the explosion. So he makes, he and one bodyguard, and that was a real surprise to all of us that he only had one bodyguard. Because huh. like Javier said, this guy at one point had 500 Sicarios protect me. Yeah. So him and his bodyguard, they make their way up to the third floor. The cops come up to the second floor. They see Pablo. Pablo starts shooting at him. There's a little running gun battle inside there. Uh, the bodyguard jumps out the, the third floor window onto the roof of the row house behind him, which is only a two-story row house, okay? So he has to drop down one floor. Well, the cops had sent a couple guys on the backside to, to cut off the escape. When the bodyguard got over to the edge of the roof, they ordered him to drop his weapon. He started shooting at the cops. Well, they killed him, and he fell off the roof onto the ground. Oh. Now, Pablo gets up to that third floor window. He knows cops are coming up the steps behind him, but now he's seen his bodyguard get killed, so he knows there's bad guys down, or good guys. Good guys, yeah, yeah. Ground. So he goes in and jumps out that window, and he's trying to stay up against the wall because the adjacent row house is a three-story, so you get this wall right here. But he knows as soon as the guys get up to that third floor window, they're going to have a direct line of sight to him. Yeah. So he makes a run across the, the roof. The guys on top, they yell for him to drop his weapons, turns around. He's got two handguns. He's shooting at them. He's shooting at the guys on the ground. They catch him in a crossfire, and they kill him on that roof that day. Wow. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who fired the killing shots. You know, the um, some people think U.S. Special Forces did. I'm here to tell you. And Javier support this. That's not true. I, and we don't mean any disrespect to those guys. I, we've already told you, we, we have the utmost respect for them. But I know where they were because I'd been in the room talking with them. There's no way they could have physically gotten out there. Yeah. You know, one of the rumors is out that uh, they a sniper, U.S. sniper, fired a shot from a mile away. Could they do that? No doubt in my mind they could. Yeah, yeah. But I know they didn't because I know where they were. So, and the reason we point that out is we want the world to know the true heroes in this whole operation, you know, people, you can imagine the names that Javier and I have been called over the years. And even on our social media sites, we still get called a lot of nasty names because there's still a lot of Escobar sympathizers out there. Really? Oh, that's interesting. But now, you know, people are saying, oh, you guys are true American heroes. No, we're not. We're professional law enforcement officers that got huh. to work a really big drug case. The true heroes are the Colombian National Police because they persevered and they took their country back from this piece of, Person. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is crazy. So, so what's gone on since then? I mean, is it just the other cartels take over? Are they smaller? Are they bigger? Like, what's the volume of trade? Do you know? Uh, there's still cartels out there. They're smaller. They learn from Pablo Escobar. Uh -huh. They learn not to be as big as uh, flashy. You know, the bodyguards are smaller. They're independent. They're still dope coming across. You know, it's as long as there's money to be made. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, can you buy drugs right now uh, anywhere? Of course you can, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, as long as there's money to be made, the trappers don't care who gets killed, who gets hurt. They're, they're in it for, for the money. So, but they learned, they adapted Cali cartel said uh -huh. while we were chasing Escobar. So they were more business-like Cali cartel was a pretty much business oriented where Pablo was wild, wild west. Got it. Down other cartels, look at Mexico, the, the, the situation. So they're still dope coming across, you know, money to be made. Wow. Now, is there anything else I haven't asked you? I mean, you guys have been it's really uh, open, <laughs> I guess, about everything that's, that's gone on. Like anything about this case that's interesting that uh, maybe I haven't? Well, it's Steve said, and I'm going to say it again, the real heroes, like I said, our hats off to Colombia, the Colombia National Police, Colonel Martinez, General Vargas. There's a lot of unsung heroes who, who never got the credit uh, that they deserve. And we also, uh, we, we tell people, we do, we do a lot of presentations all over the world, shows, and visit Colombia. It's a great country. It's beautiful. It's safe. It is... Uh, just uh, amazing people, right? And, oh. and Steve, uh, he, you know, he, I don't know if you want to mention your, your gifts, right? Sure. Yeah, so um, if you've seen the show Narcos, it talks about uh, my wife and I adopting a little girl down there. Then 
you know, her, her father was the guy that set the bomb off on the Aviaca flight. This is according to Narcos. Okay, okay. And then Pablo sends Sicarios out to kill the mother and the baby. Well, the mother is killed, but the baby survives. And it shows Javier had been through this running gun battle on the roofs of the communas there in Medellin. That's all Hollywood. We, we right. weren't running across rooftops by ourselves shooting at people. We were always with the Columbia National Police. <laughs> okay, okay. But then, it, but then it shows Javier come walking back, and Murphy looks down, and he sees the little girl, and he's like, well, she's cute. I think I'm just going to take her home. And so he takes, snatches her up. You can't do that. That's kidnapping. Even in Columbia. You can't in Columbia anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so my wife and I actually did adopt a little girl down there, uh, but we just went through normal channels. She's, uh-huh. uh, her name is Monica. She was uh, eight months old when we adopted her. Oh, wow. She's, she's from a little town north of the, of the city of Bogota. Uh-huh. But what they didn't show in Narcos, it was supposed to be at the end of season two, and for whatever reason, it got cut out was my wife and I adopted a second little girl. Oh, cool. Her name, her name is Mandy. She was five months old. She's from Medellin. Uh-huh. And the, the orphanage where we got her, where we picked her up, um, and you can imagine the security. This We adopted Mandy after Pablo was dead, and, but we had to go to Medellin a couple of times. And so the ambassador was insistent that we have this massive security detail, which was all the cops that Javier and I have been working with for the last few years. So it's no problem. Yeah. But there was a building on the hillside up behind the orphanage uh, called the Monaco building. And that's where Escobar's family lived. So had this eight story condo building and the only people lived there was Escobar, their maids and their servants and their bodyguards. So as we're finishing up the adoption process, the director of the, of the agency calls us and she spoke fluent English, just a sweet lady named Maria. Maria says, can I ask you guys some questions now? And, you know, that's not a real comfortable feeling, to be honest yeah, with no, you. Yeah, no, not good. And I said, well, I don't know. Is there a problem? And she said, no, no, no. She said, that little girl is yours. The paperwork's been done. The judge has finalized it. Nobody can take her away from you. She said, and I said, okay, what's your question? She said, who are you people? <laughs> I said, Maria, you know who we are. You, you did a home study on us. You've got all our paperwork. She said, yeah, but you know what? We adopt to a lot of Americans. We've never seen anybody come here with a security detail like you have. Carlos, guys carrying rifles, you know. And uh, so finally, I said, uh, "Well, do you know what the DEA is?" And she said, "I knew it. I knew it had to be something like that." And I said, "Now, Maria, do we have a problem? Because I got three Carlos guys out there who come in here and help, you know." And, and <laughs> she's like, "No, no, no." She said, "Let me just tell you a story." She said, uh, "And and this is kind of sad." You know, I, we like to cut up and have fun with our shows, but but this is the reality of the situation down there with Pablo Escobar. She said her 17-year-old son was out with some of his buddies in the city just doing what 17-year-olds do, you know, probably trying to get some beer and chase girls. Uh-huh. And two rival drug gangs show up, and they end up in an argument and a gun battle, and her 17-year-old son is killed by a stray bullet. Ugh. So her message was, please pass this on to your partner. Thank you for what you did for our country. Thank you for making it safe. Thank you for taking down Pablo Escobar. While we weren't directly responsible for that, I guess indirectly we did participate in it because we don't want to take any credit away from the Colombian National Police. But having a Colombian National tell you that, just it just made you feel like all your efforts and sacrifices and everything that you did actually was worth it. And now, in all the shows we go to around the world, in my neighborhood, we always run into Colombians. And when they find out who you are, they always want to come up and thank you for what you did. So Wow, that is so cool. I can't think of a better pat on the back or, or a better way to go out than with a comment like that. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about, because you guys are speakers just like me, uh, what kind of groups do you speak to? How can people get a hold of you? How can people get your book? Let's, let's talk all about just what you're doing now. <laughs> okay, well... Uh, we speak to groups with money. That's the kind of groups we like to speak to because <laughs> there's a paycheck. So you don't like to work for free. <laughs> well, it's so weird. <laughs> we do, we do uh, support some uh, nonprofit charitable groups. So yeah, we do do some free work. Yeah, I do some free ones too. Okay. So yeah. now you got to give, give back, but we're into our fifth year of uh, what our agent calls the world tour. Of course, okay. you know, here in 2020, our tour has been pretty much shut down because of the pandemic. Um, but we talked to everything from theaters and performing arts centers to colleges and universities to 
corporate events. You know, that's that's what we really like to do. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, it's because they pay more than anybody else. Don't they, huh? Yeah, uh, it's nice. We, we talk to civic groups. I've spoken to faith-based groups. We've both spoken to high schools. Um, and, and, and our whole goal is just to tell the truth about the Escobar story. It's, you know, people see narcos and outside of the United States, people believe everything they see in narcos is true. You know, so we just want them to know that, that it really isn't true. And, and so that's our purpose. Um, you can find out about us on our website, which is deanarcos.com. That's deanarcos.com. Um, there's everything on there from pictures from our shows to an active calendar that shows you where we'll be. Uh, there's testimonials on there. There's videos. Uh, um, just anything about us to do with the show and, and what we're doing, you can access on there. But also, uh, you know, last year, last November, we came up with our book, which is um, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Now, let me just put this out here because we get some negative comments. I think it's a great book. I think it's a great book. Well, that entire book's not about Pablo Escobar. Well, it's not. It's about three-fourths other things. (laughs) I liked it, though. Uh Uh-oh, did we lose Steve? Uh Uh-oh, he'll be back. Tell us about the book. Yeah, it's 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 a great book because you know we it we deal with other stuff too, right? Other cases, family situations. So and it's real history. This is the real history of the Medellin cartel with you know with personal information, how we did it, and uh, our lives. So it's it's a good read. I I, you know I read it. What what else can I say? Right. I it. <laughs> Sorry about that, but you can get it. Like I said, if you go on our website, uh, we can we have it personalized where you put a message in and we tell, uh, you, you write, we'll write it. And both of us uh, have signed it. And again, uh, it's uh, it's on Amazon. It's, you know, all, all over the place. So uh, please, you know, it's, it's something you can enjoy. And it's real history of what happened to Pablo Escobar. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on Frogbusting. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Yep, I had fun. And uh, you too. I mean, uh, hopefully this pandemic, we're all hoping it'll end soon, you know, but, but, you know, we just got to take care of ourselves right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.